Hello and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I like to share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch, and they do tend to be art house and world cinema. What I think makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my own life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I like to explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Guillermo del Toro's 2006 film, Pan's Labyrinth. I'm talking about this film because it's a film that I watched after my father died in 2006 when I was 16 years old. This episode is a little bit long. I'm going to first talk about um, how I turned to cinema for salvation after I lost my father at such a young age and how films helped me survive, how they became a form of escape for me, but they also um, gave me a reason to live and they really were my salvation at that time. After that, I'm going to give you an in-depth analysis of Pan's Labyrinth, why I love it, why I connect so deeply to it. I'm going to talk about themes of grief and loss and the coming of age of a little girl and myth and fairy tales and all kinds of things like that. But it will be rooted in a personal connection to the film and why it made such an impression on me when I saw it after my father's death and why it continues to mean so much to me. And finally, the end of the episode will consist of an interview that I did with my mom because me and her would go to the movies together after my father died. And so I wanted to talk to her about the experience of going to the movies and why we found so much solace at the movie theater and what that experience was like. So I will share that with you. It's it's a little bit wild. It's a little bit, um, there's a lot of laughing and it's very lighthearted. Um, it's a big contrast to some of the other episodes I've done. It's not as serious, but I wanted to share it because I thought there were some really good moments in it that were worth sharing. So that'll come at the end of the episode. So I, I hope that you'll stick around. I hope that you'll listen to the whole episode, even though I know it's a little bit long. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and you can get access to rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. First, I'd love to give a big welcome to my brand new patrons, Iris and Teal. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, becoming a patron and supporting the work that I'm doing. And I'd like to give a shout out to my longtime patrons, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Paulina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you again so much for supporting the work I do. You make this podcast possible, and I really do appreciate it. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. This is what helps people discover the podcast, and I would just really love if you would leave um, leave a review. You can tell your friends and followers about the podcast. Um, 
Or you can follow me on social media and engage with me in, on social media. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. And I'm just now on Instagram. Just look for Her Head and Films. So, um, and you can see a list of all the social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. Boy, have I missed talking to all of you. I've missed doing this podcast. I've been away for a few weeks. A lot of things conspired against me. I got sick with colds a few times. Had to sort of cancel for the week and not do an episode. Because I didn't have, you know, a strong voice. And I was um, really stopped up and all of that. But the hardest thing that I've been through the last week or so, a little bit over a week ago... Uh, my mom was hospitalized. She had a severe case of bronchitis and she was in the hospital for about three days and it was a really scary experience. Um, she's never been that sick. She's never had um, bronchitis like that and um, it was scary. They said that if we had waited any longer really to take her to the hospital that she may have ended up on a ventilator. So this was a really serious experience. She's much better now. She's been at home for about a week now. We've been giving her breathing treatments and different things like that. And so she is recovering. She's still not 100%. She's still not feeling great. She feels really tired and wiped out. And it was a very stressful experience and a scary experience to have her so sick. Um, I don't know how to handle things like that at all because my mom is my world. She's all I have. She's um, my main support in life and um, we have a really strong connection. And what made this harder is that it happened in May. It happened at the beginning of May. And um, May is a difficult month for me, and that's why I'm doing this episode, because it is May, as I record this, May 2018. This month is loaded for me. It's painful for me, because it's the month when my father died. And that's why I'm doing this episode. I want to talk about how cinema has been a comfort for me, and how I really turned to movies after he died. And he passed away in 2006, and I've talked about him a lot on the podcast. He's really woven into it in so many ways, because I think that grief and loss, those things stay with us, and they haunt us. And even though he died in 2006, and this is the 12th anniversary this year, time really has no substance or meaning when it comes to loss, when it comes to someone that you deeply loved and who has died. When I was little, I had people that died. I I had like a grandmother that died and things like that, but it didn't hit me. I was five or six years old. I certainly didn't comprehend it. I certainly didn't have a ironclad relationship with her or anything. Um... I didn't have that deep, deep connection, but when my father died, that was something else entirely, and nothing can prepare you for it, especially to go through it when you're 16 years old. Other kids 
are having very different experiences at that age. They're dating and they are going to the prom a few years later and learning to drive and, you know, they're just doing all those typical teenager things. And I was burying my father, you know, and I still don't have language for it or words for what it did to me. And it was catastrophic. It was the defining experience of my life. It shattered me completely. And the rest of the time since then has been me trying to survive. There is this demarcation in my life. The before and the after. You know, before is before that day in May of 2006. That is my real life. That is the life that I ache for again, that I can't go back to. I can never go back to that zone, to that time before he died. And I am forever um, forced to live in the after, in the trauma of his death and what it did to me. Um, it was sudden. It was unexpected. He did have health issues in the years leading up to his death, but this was not something that I saw coming. It came out of the blue, and it was literally a beautiful day. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the clothes I was wearing. I remember the color of the sky and the trees. I remember driving to the hospital. I remember the drive home after the hospital. I remember his body in the hospital bed dead and seeing him that way and not understanding it, not comprehending it. I remember when they told me that he was dead and it's like, this is the moment. This is the singular experience of my life, that moment that cracked a hole in my world and, and cracked me open and destroyed me is that moment of learning this new knowledge of death, of him being dead. This is the new life that I have to live. I don't get any escape from it. So... I've tried to watch films about grief and loss. I've tried to read books about it, like memoirs. And I think I was searching for some kind of representation of it. Of how do you put this into language? How do you express what it means to be told that the person you love more than anything is gone forever? And I'm not religious. I'm an atheist. I have no belief in an afterlife or in, in God. I don't believe anything comes after death. I don't think that the dead keep living in any way. How do I live with this? How do I live with this? Um, and I keep looking for representations of it, and I think I've come to the realization that there is no representation, that there are places that... And I think I've said this previously, that there are places the camera cannot go. There are places that our language cannot go. That forms of expression have not been created to go that deeply into a person's psychology. Or into my psychology of what that experience was like. And it has 
completely gutted me. And um, I did not handle his death well. I was 16 years old. I was alone. It was me and my mom. I didn't have a supportive family. I didn't have a support system. I didn't have a bunch of friends who swooped in and cared about me and took care of me. It was me and my mom. And for the most part, it's still me and my mom. And that's why we have such a deep, deep bond. It's because after his death, so much happened. You know, my dad died in 2006. My grandmother died in 2007. And my uncle died in 2009. So within this short period of time, three years, three people in my life are gone. And I'm not even 20 years old yet. How do you process that? How do you cope with it? How do you deal with it? How do you... How do you make sense of it at that age? And so that compressed period of time defines me in so many ways and wounded me in in ways that I can't even put into words. That it was this um, crucible in which I was formed. I was malformed and deformed. I became something that I still don't know how to accept or deal with. Because before my father died, I had mental illness and I had depression and I had anxiety. But his death exacerbated those things. But I'm doing this episode because I want to share my story. And throughout the podcast, on every episode, I'm sharing my story. I'm narrating my story. I'm bearing witness to my life through the films that I connect to. But I want to be real with you. And I want to be honest with you about that time in my life and even the time in my life now. I am someone who is authentic. Like, I'm not saying that as a pat on the back or anything. What you see is what you get with me. Who I am on the podcast is who I am. Online, I think a lot of people pretend to be somebody they're not. They're putting on this image. They're... It's almost like a charade or a masquerade or something like that. And I'm the complete opposite. I want to be honest. I want to be real. I want to be authentic. I want to be vulnerable. I think I said this in another episode. I think the vulnerability of this podcast is one of its strengths. And my own vulnerability, whether it's in these episodes or it's in my writing... Um, or my online presence, that is something that I think is important and that I value. I'm always hoping that through my vulnerability and what I share, that you will connect to it or you will see yourself in it or you'll get something out of it. And so that's why I'm talking about this because I want you to understand that his death was the end of me. That it, it was my death too. That I could not live with it. I still can't live with it. And in the years after, things got really bad. I thought about suicide. I seriously considered suicide. I have a very clear memory. This was... Probably a few days, a few weeks after my dad died. 
I was holding a Tylenol bottle and it was filled with pills, with capsules. And I emptied that bottle of Tylenol into my hand, like every single capsule. They looked like little torpedoes, I thought at the time. And I emptied them into my hand and I thought, this is the way out. You know, I don't have to go on anymore missing him and hurting and feeling unloved and invisible and isolated and scared. I was so scared because I think obviously when you lose a parent that young, it brings death into your life. You can never go back again. I became terrified of dying. I became terrified of my mother dying. I became really scared of of storms. I was really scared of like thunder and I was scared of loud sounds like when planes would go over the house. Um I was so terrified. I had panic attacks. Um we were pretty poor at that time. We were really struggling financially after my father passed away and we've struggled since then as well. I'm working class. I'm always financially precarious. Um, I didn't have the resources to go and get counseling or to go see a psychiatrist or I've never been able really to get any kind of help with my mental health issues, especially related to his death. When I was in college a few years later, I did get some grief counseling, but that was the only time in my life that I've ever gotten any kind of counseling or therapy. But um, I held these pills in my hand and I thought, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be alive. And obviously, I didn't swallow them because I'm still here and I'm still going. The main thing was my mom, you know, thinking of my mom and maybe what she would have to go through and I couldn't put her through that kind of pain. And she was my main support. I was her main support and um I just couldn't do it. I I'm scared of death, so I can't do it. I just can't. It was too it's too scary. It's it's scary to live, but it's really scary to die too, so I didn't do it. But um, that was a moment in which it was probably the most intense experience of just wanting to disappear and wanting to just dissolve into nothingness. It's a very intense sensation and it's a strong memory for me of almost choosing that, of going in that direction and um really staring at the abyss being on the edge in that moment because I didn't know how to live without this person he wasn't just a father to me you know everybody has complicated relationships with their fathers but some of you listening if your father passed away you would probably maybe think oh I can go on living you know you may not feel that deep deep connection because we all have complicated relationships with our parents but for me, it, it was very different. He was my best friend. He was someone who loved me and cared about me and took care of me and affirmed me and valued me and gave me unconditional love. And um, 
he was a sweet, gentle, kind man. He wasn't perfect. He was complex. He was troubled at times because he had been through different things in his own life. But he was sensitive and he was kind and he was generous. And he loved music and um, he was very athletic, very hardworking. Um, he was an extraordinary father. He really was. And um, to lose that was devastating. And it still is. And I still struggle with it because I may have put the pills back in the bottle. But a lot of times I don't want to be alive. I don't, I'm not saying I want to be dead, but I don't want to be alive. I don't want to be in my life. I don't want to be in my body. I don't want to be in my mind. Um, I want an escape. And that's what, that's what cinema is for me. It's what literature is for me. It's what music and art are for me. So I couldn't escape the pain. I couldn't escape the grief any other way. And I think that is partly why after he died, I became so dependent on movies and cinema. Um, but I wanted to be really honest about the years, the, the first few years after he died. Um, I, I did feel suicidal. I did feel lost. I did feel really frightened. I struggled with anxiety and depression and panic attacks. Um, I got to the point where I was agoraphobic and I couldn't leave my house. This was after I graduated high school. Um, you know, again, it's like most people that age, they're 17 and 18 graduating high school and they're going off to college. They're full of hope and dreams and optimism. And all of that was stolen from me. All of that was stolen from me when he died. Um, I've never felt that way. I still don't feel that way. I don't see any future for myself. I can't even think of the future. I live in the present purely. I live... I live sometimes like minute by minute, hour by hour. I don't think days ahead of my life because his death stole that too. It stole the future. It stole hope. It stole optimism. And in its place, it left sorrow and despair and depression and melancholy and alienation and bitterness and resentment because I wouldn't say I'm like a happy person <laughs> you know I really struggle I think back I think god why couldn't I just be an average person why couldn't I just be a normal teenager and get to have those experiences why you know, why couldn't I and I just couldn't you know, I was thinking about killing myself and um, couldn't leave my house. So the agoraphobia got really bad and it was scary and I didn't know what to do. I didn't have the resources to deal with it. I still don't know how I got through it. I don't know. 
I don't have it now, but it can be really difficult for me sometimes to, well, most of the time, to be out in public, to be around crowds, to be around people. I have really bad social anxiety. Um, And so I'm really isolated. You know, I don't have friends and family and stuff like that. Um, I've talked about it before, but in 2015, um, I moved. I moved. uh, I don't want to go into it, but I moved. I lost a lot of my possessions. I lost my house. I moved to another state. So I don't know anybody here. And it's just, it's been a really painful, difficult experience. But, um, so I got through the agoraphobia somehow. And, um, but it was a big part of my life for a little while. And I'm sharing all this because I, I, I guess in a way I'm trying to speak to people who may be going through something similar, who may be going through grief, who may be several years or maybe you're 12 years down the road like I am too and you're still struggling. Or maybe it's a raw grief for you and you've just recently lost somebody. But I'm trying to, I think, reach those people or talk to those people in some way and, and tell them about my experiences and um I guess what I want to say because I I don't know I want to almost try to use my story to help someone I guess but I would like to like I wish I could keep somebody else from going through what I went through that's what I wish I could do um is to prevent that pain for someone else. Like if there's something I can share to help them in some way, because I didn't have anybody. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do or how to deal with this or how to process this. I did not have that. And um, I think what I, I want to say a few things. I want to say if you have any kind of support system, even if it's one person and you feel comfortable enough, and you feel like they're supportive enough, I would urge you to reach out to them, and to talk to them, and lean on them, let them help you, if you have somebody like that in your life, I did not, (laughs) I was not lucky enough to have that, but if you do have that person, I mean, I had my mom, but it's different when you're both hurting, you know, you're both grieving, you, you're both in shock. We were there for each other as much as we could be, but you're a human being and there's only so much you can do. And I'm sure I wasn't there for her enough in her grief. It's just really hard, but maybe if you have somebody who is outside of it a little bit, they can, they can be a support and they can help you. I would urge you to do that. If you have the resources and you have the means to see a therapist or a grief counselor, I would urge you to do it, even if you don't think it would help you. I did not necessarily think it would help me. I went to college. Um, I got got through that agoraphobia and that depression and that anxiety. God knows how I did it. I don't know. I think maybe it was art. I think it was writing. I think it was cinema. I think it was literature. I turned to those things in my grief and in my 
shatteredness. Um, I think I try to reconstruct myself and rebuild my life out of art and out of those things that I'm passionate about. That is why this podcast matters to me. And it's why cinema matters to me. It is so deeply personal to me. I can't even put into words what films mean to me. What the experience of watching a film is for me. I'll never be able to put it into words. I fail every time. Whether I write about it, I talk about it, I'm always failing. Because there's no way I can put it into language. But I keep trying. I keep trying. So I went to college from 2010 to 2014. And probably about halfway through that, I did go see a grief counselor. I had a few sessions with them. And it was helpful at the time. And it was beneficial to have someone sit there and validate things that I felt. I felt guilt over my father's death. My father's death is really complicated and there's a lot to it and it's why when I talk about him I don't talk specifically about his death because there's just so much to it and I don't feel comfortable sharing it. That grief counselor is the only person besides me and my mother who knows exactly what happened to my father and um, there was a liberation about sharing it with somebody and having them say you have the right to feel the way you feel. I talked about things about my family and the way they treated me and my mom after my father died, how hurtful and painful it was, how toxic those people were, her side of the family and my dad's side of the family. And I cut both of them out. I don't have any relationship or connection with my mom's family or my dad's family. It was so toxic, I had to cut those people out. But there is a guilt about it, right? That you're related to these people. There's a blood bond. You should have a relationship with them. I don't believe that. If somebody is hurting you, if somebody is not loving you, supporting you, bringing good things into your life, you have every right to cut them out, to say, no, I don't want you in my life. You don't have to put up with it. But to have this counselor affirm me to say, yeah, you made the right choice with that, or you have every right to feel the way you feel about what your family did to you, that really helped me. It really gave me a sense of maybe healing or closure um, to hear someone validate that. So I would urge you to do that. I really would if you have the means or the resources. I didn't have those resources until six years later after it happened and I often wonder if I'd had it right when it happened if I'd had it in 2006 right when he died would it have made a difference for me would I have spiraled the way I did would I have gone so deeply into this darkness and in this pain and I don't know maybe it would have made a difference maybe it would have helped me cope better but I could not cope my body and mind could not cope with what with what happened and with all the death that happened with all the people i had lost and i still can't deal with it i still deal with the fallout of of his death and of the grief and my body i'm 28 i don't feel 28 my body is not 28 my body has been through hell 
physically because the mental affects the physical. And I really struggle and I do have health issues that are connected to a lot of what I went through. And that's ongoing and that's chronic and that's that's something that's really difficult for me to deal with even now. So reach out to people if you can. Get with a counselor or therapist if that's an option for you. It's not an option for everybody. If it's not an option for you, then I would urge you to turn to the things that you are passionate about and to try to create a sense of meaning and purpose through those things. I didn't have religion. I didn't have God. I didn't have a church to go to. I went to the movie theater. I went to books. I took my grief to those movie theaters. I sat in those movie theaters with my grief and with my pain. And watching those films up on that screen was the closest thing to healing that I've probably ever felt. Because after my dad died, me and my mom, we started to go to a local movie theater that we had. It was a discount theater. You could get in for a dollar at that time. And so this was 2006, 2007, 2008, I would say, that period of time. And you could get in for a dollar. The concessions were pretty affordable, too. They'd have different days where there were discounts. And the only thing about the movie theater was that, first of all, it wasn't in the best condition. The seats were terrible most of the time. Parts of the ceiling were falling off. It wasn't the cleanest or possibly the safest building in the world. Um, So that was one thing. And um, you didn't get to see movies right when they came out. You did not get to see new releases. They would come out. They would come to that theater months later. So that was the way that me and my mom were really able to to go to films and to enjoy them. We only had to pay a dollar. Sometimes we'd see double features. We were often there probably every week or every other week, anytime there was a good film. And I'm not saying I went to see art house cinema. I saw comedies. I saw chick flicks and romantic comedies. And then I did see some foreign films like Pan's Labyrinth and The Lives of Others. And um, there's probably some others that I'm forgetting. So... I saw a huge mix of films in that theater and that experience was so powerful for me and I think that was really the first time in my life when I went to cinema for like salvation. I'd always liked films. I'd watched old black and white films on Turner Classic Movies. I'd taken a film appreciation class when I was in high school but after his death That is when cinema became so deeply personal. That's when it got into my bloodstream, into my system, into my bones. And just sitting in that darkened theater and seeing that screen light up and seeing those lives and those stories and losing myself in them or coming to some kind of understanding about myself or the world through these films, they kept me alive It kept me alive. Literature and these movies and my mother and love kept me alive. And if you're struggling too, find the things that make you feel alive and hold on for dear life to them. I want you to hold on to them because you matter and your life matters and you have value. And you may not be able to feel that 
if you're grieving or if you're depressed or if you feel like you're nothing or nobody and your life is going nowhere. I feel that way too. I feel that way every day. I feel like such a failure. I feel like my father would not want me to live like this. He wouldn't want me to be sad and depressed and all of these things because I still struggle so much. And I feel a lot of shame about it. I feel so much shame about my life. And um, But it doesn't really matter what my dad would want. He's not here. And I don't live my life that way. I don't live my life thinking, oh, would my dad want this? You know? I, I don't do that. He's not here. I have to live with him not being here. And so, yeah, I'm not doing a great job of it most of the time. And I wish I was doing a better job. And I wish I was more resilient and strong. And I wish to God I could be an inspirational story to you and say, it gets better and everything's going to be okay. But I can't say that to you truthfully. Because sometimes it gets worse. And sometimes you keep losing and losing and losing. And you're scared. And you fall apart. And you're shattered. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay if you can't deal with it. It's okay if you have to fall apart. Whatever you feel is okay. However you cope, you have to do the best that you can. But I guess I would like my story to be an example of maybe what not to do or what to try to avoid you know, I don't want other people to be like me. I don't want them to be trapped in like a vortex of grief the way I am. I want them to be better than that, better than me. All you can do is what you can do. You know, that's all you can do. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but forgive yourself I've tried I've been trying to do that more like forgive yourself you know be kind to yourself care for yourself that matters so much do things that you love I think a lot of people feel guilt after they lose somebody they shouldn't laugh they shouldn't dance they shouldn't find joy or feel joy it's okay it's okay to feel those things after someone dies you have to survive in some way and there's no shame in laughing. And there's no shame in crying. When he first died, I cried every day. I thought I'd cry every day for the rest of my life. But there came days where I didn't cry. And there came days when I laughed and when I did feel a sense of joy. It wasn't the same joy as when he was alive. It will never be the same. It will never be the same kind of happiness and joy as I had when he was alive. But it is its own kind of joy. It's a different kind, but it still matters. And so let yourself have that. And something that has helped me and something that I did not have at the time when he died was meditation. Um, I got into it probably a few years ago and I've been trying to do it on a daily basis so for several years now, I've gotten much more into meditation. I've gotten into ambient music, music that is like maybe 
ocean waves or the rain. And I'm not saying this is a cure for what you're feeling or it's a cure for grief or anxiety or anything like that. This is a tool that I use. This is just something that I use to try to deal with anxiety and to try to deal with depression. I meditate. I try to listen to relaxing music. I really love film scores and film soundtracks. I listen to those a lot. Um, So on top of literature, on top of cinema, meditation has been something that has helped me. Um, Just, you know, when I get really anxious or if I'm going through a day where I don't feel good physically because of health issues that I have, I'll just start to think about my breath. I'll count my breath. I'll count, you know, when I inhale one, when I exhale two, and I'll count like that for a little while. Or I'll say, or I'll breathe in and I'll say to myself, in, and I'll breathe out and I'll say out to myself, in, out, in, out. I remind myself that I'm breathing, that I'm here in this moment, that I'm alive, that I'm going to be okay, and I try to focus in on my breath. So it just, it's something that does help me that, that when I am in a really dire, dire thing, um, sometimes even when I go out places like a restaurant or to a store, I can start to feel anxiety. And so that's something I'll do is that I'll count my breaths and try to, focus in on the moment so what I'm going to do is in the show um, the, the show notes I'm going to give you some resources that I use for meditation and ambient music and things like that and I think that they will be helpful for you possibly if you're open to it if you're interested in it if you're not that's totally fine <laughs> I'm not I'm not a guru I'm not a preacher about meditation but I did want to mention it as something that has helped me Um, in the last few years as I have struggled with different things whether it's health issues or losing my home or dealing with my ongoing grief over my father's death meditation and calming music um, and journaling I'm a really big uh, journaler (laughs) I've written in a diary for years and years and years And I do believe in the healing power of writing, of writing your feelings, of just writing in general. And that helps me at times. So um, so I'll definitely share some resources about meditation. There are different apps that I use. Um, There are different um, resources. They're free. I have found a lot of free resources. And so I'll share those in the show notes. I want to be generous and I want to share stuff with you if it could help you possibly if you're listening to this and not just struggling with grief. You don't have to be struggling with grief, but if you struggle with anxiety, depression, just if you feel like you're in a place in your life where you're just unraveling and sort of spiraling, you know, meditation has helped me a bit and writing has helped me and finding things that I'm passionate about and holding on to them. And in the last few years, that's become cinema, you know, with this podcast and um, films have become a really healing, life affirming, life saving thing for me. And um, but it started the root of it is really in those years after my father died and going to that movie theater and sitting in those seats and watching those stories show up on the screen. I went to 
cinema to help me deal with grief to help me at times escape it and to not feel it so deeply and to have a reprieve from what I was feeling and the pain and cinema was that for me and so that's why I'm doing this episode that's why I'm revisiting some of the films that I watched in those years um because that I still have very intense memories of them and sometimes the memories matter more than the movies like I said, some of the movies I saw were not that great. You know, they, they wouldn't be considered anything important or classic. But in that moment, they served a purpose for me and they helped me. And so cinema has continued ever since that time after my father died. Cinema has been that for me. It's been, it's been a, a comfort. It's been a space for me to enter and to feel something besides the grief. To feel some kind of connection or to feel less alone or to laugh, to feel joy, to feel, um, you know, uh, happiness maybe because it's a funny movie or, um, yeah, to feel, I feel a sense of love, you know, when I'm watching a film or if I'm in a movie theater, it really is a sense of, of home, a sense of love. And it was the same for my mom, I think. And and we shared that experience together. And um, I can just still see myself in that theater. It's so vivid for me, those memories. And I think when I do this podcast, I'm always trying... What I'm trying to do is to hold on to that person that I was, that teenage girl that I was... In that movie theater, watching those films and feeling alive and feeling um, a sense of healing or feeling a sense of connection, feeling a sense of comfort and solace. Um, That's why I keep going back to the movies. That's why I keep engaging with cinema and talking about cinema because it's something that is part of my body and my soul. Even going back to that film appreciation class in high school, which was before my father died, watching Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Ingrid Bergman and and all of that. It's just, it's so vivid in my mind just watching these the screen, watching these classic films. And um, even now when I watch old films, it's just... It's such a sense of comfort. Like I, I just feel so much comfort when I watch old films, old black and white films. It really is that child inside of me that I'm trying to hold on to, that I'm trying to preserve and and um, keep alive in some way. Because I think that we should try to stay connected to that child in us. That is, I think, a pure part of us, a vulnerable part of us, a beautiful part of us is the wonder we had as a child, the openness we had as a child. We were so open to life and curious and we craved knowledge and we wanted to learn about things. And that's how I was as a child. I was always craving knowledge. I was always buying books and watching movies and watching PBS and listening to NPR. And I was curious about the world. I was curious about other people around the world and other cultures, other religions. I grew up in a rural, small town in the South. That's where I still live. I still live in a rural area of the South, even though I don't live where I grew up. Um, 
but I've always been an expansive person. I've always been someone that wanted to know about others and wanted to hear other stories. And that's what I do through cinema a lot. It's what I do through art house film. And so for me, film is personal. It has no connection to the ivory tower. It has no connection to academia. It has no connection to theory um, at all. You know, for me, these films are life. Um, these films are home. These these films are my heart and my soul. And um, what I'm always trying to do with this podcast is make art house cinema accessible. And I've said this before, but that is one of my big goals is to make some people realize whoever listens to these episodes, <laughs> wherever you live and whoever you are, that art house cinema is not for the academics and the film theorists and the people who know the big ornate words, the big special words and all the theories and all the philosophies and all the philosophers. Um, that's not who art house cinema is for. It's for all of us. It's for everybody. And you have every right to engage with it. And to think about it and to feel a connection to it that is your own. And you can make these films your own. And that's what I'm trying to do in these episodes, in this podcast, is to make these films my own. I'm not trying to be a historian. I'm not trying to be an academic. I'm not trying to be an authority. I'm trying to talk about the films that matter to me, that move me. That are important to me. But in the process. I'm trying to make art house cinema. Accessible to everybody. And. To take it into a place. Of of the personal. The emotional. The subjective. I'm not trying to write an essay. I'm not trying to get a degree. That's not what I'm trying to do. I live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I barely. The only film uh, movie theater near me. Only shows blockbusters. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just trying to share this passion and to make you see, maybe if you're someone who doesn't watch art house cinema or doesn't watch a lot of stuff like that, that you could, that it's there for you to discover however you want to discover it, that the directors and the films are there for you to love however you want to love them. And there's not some special canon that you have to watch. Watch what you want. Forget about the reviews. Forget about everybody's opinions and my opinions. Figure out what you feel, what you connect to, and what matters to you. And you can make those films your own. They don't have to be difficult. They don't have to be remote. These films can be deeply, deeply emotional. Whether it's Tarkovsky, Ingmar Bergman, Agnes Varda, Chantal Ackerman. These are personal, deep films. And you can make them make them your own. And that is what I have done. That's what I did six years ago, or well, more than six years ago, a decade ago, 12 years ago, when I started going to the movies in a very intense way and connecting to those films. I made them my own. I chose to embrace them and I chose to love them and open myself up to them. And um, I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I did that. And 
for me, cinema is just a constant process of discovery. There's so many directors out there. There's so many films out there. There's still so much to watch and see and discover and to explore and to talk about. And that keeps me going. That keeps me excited. It keeps me alive. It keeps me stimulated. There's still so much to discover. It's endlessly, you know, infinite. It's just infinite. Um, cinema is and literature is the same way all these arts are infinite right Um, but I have found something in cinema that I was always searching for I think that I have not been able to find in books or in paintings or in music that there is something unique and special about what cinema has to say and what it has to show us and it it especially when it comes to grief and even though I'm not talking about films that are specifically about grief and I could have easily done that I could have talked about films that were about grief but instead I wanted to center this episode on a specific film that I watched while I was grieving while I was going through grief and what that film meant to me and what it how it spoke to me and what it said to me and that was really important to me and um There is just something about cinema, not only in the way that it can represent grief and what it can show and what it can say, but also in just how someone who is grieving can go to cinema. And even if the film is not about grief, they can find a connection to it and and find something resonant about it for their own lives. Or they can just go to escape. They can just go to have an hour or two where... They don't have to think about what they've lost and who they've lost and the pain that they've been through. And that matters. That's important too. Um, Is joy and pleasure and reveling in films. Just reveling in them. Um, We don't talk about that enough. And that's also something I'm trying to do with this podcast is to center it on appreciation, on reveling, on enjoyment and pleasure you know a lot of people and it's really big nowadays to criticize and critique and dissect and that doesn't interest me I want to appreciate and revel and luxuriate in cinema and in certain films and um, you know when I watch an Agnes Varda film like Faces Places which is her most recent film I feel a sense of the possibilities of life I feel a sense of of the humanity that is still in the world and it gives me a little bit of hope (laughs) and um it makes me happy it brings me a sense of joy that's what I'm always trying to hold on to and what I'm trying to find in the films that I watch um is just that connection to life that authentic representation of life and um something that takes me deeper into life and that inspires me and and um reminds me that that I want to be alive that sometimes I don't want to be but when I'm watching a great film I wouldn't want to be anywhere else (laughs) I'm so grateful for life I'm grateful for what these artists have created and what they have put on the screen and I feel so grateful to be able to watch it and to witness it And um, that's what the greatest art does for me. It just makes me want to be alive. It makes me feel stimulated and engaged and inspired. And and, um, yeah, 
So I went to the I went to the movies to save my life. I went to cinema to save myself because nobody else was going to save me. And I, I learned that very early after he died. I learned that I had nobody. I had my mom and she had me and I had nothing else. I didn't matter. I was nothing. I was nobody, even to the people who should have cared about me the most. But I try even now to say that their opinion and their measurement of my worth is not my worth. It is not. And there are depths to me that they will never see and they will never appreciate. And that they don't get to define who I am and how I feel about myself. So even though I was abandoned and forgotten, I still am. I'm saving myself. And that's all I can do is save myself. I'm always, I think, in the process of drowning (laughs) to some extent. I always feel like I'm drowning. I always feel like I can't get my head above the water. That the grief is pulling me down and the depression is pulling me down. And the anxiety is pulling me down and the memories and the pain and the sorrow. All of it's pulling me down. But there are other things that are pulling me up and trying to pull me out. And that's how I stay alive and how I stay out of the depths. That's how I stay alive is the things that pull me up. Cinema, literature, my mother, love, connections that I've made online with really amazing people who support and care about me. And I have created my own support system. I've reached out, I've tried, I've connected with people who share my passions and I may not have it in my real life, but at least I have it on the internet. <laughs> That's something and it does help and it does make me feel less alone. Um, and that's what I do. You know, that's all I can do. It's what I've done for 12 years now. I am in a constant um, state of saving myself. I'm saving myself through these films. So that's what I'm doing. So now I want to talk about Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro. This film came out in 2006. And it's actually a really important film in my life. Because the whole reason why I'm doing this episode is because I wanted to explore a film that I watched after my father's death. When I was going to the movie theater all the time. I was going weekly or every few weeks and I was really losing myself in films and falling in love with films and finding comfort and solace and salvation in them. And when I think back to that time in my life 12 years ago, there are many films that I remember. And there are many films that meant a lot to me. But Pan's Labyrinth stands out. It's a very intense experience that I have of seeing the film and um i i want to be up front right now i don't really watch fantasy films i don't watch science fiction and i don't watch fantasy i never read the harry potter books i was never interested in the harry potter films pan's labyrinth is actually a kind of film that is outside of my comfort zone i would say it's not the type of film or the genre of film that I am most comfortable talking about or that I feel like I have a lot of knowledge about. But 
I think this is a good example, and I've said it on the podcast before, and um, I, I think I should practice what I preach, right? Sometimes you should try to go outside your comfort zone. Sometimes it's a good idea to explore films that you don't think you would necessarily like. Do I love my Andre Tarkovsky and my Ingmar Bergman and my Agnes Varda? Absolutely. Those films are precious to me. But I think sometimes I can get in my own little bubble of only watching French films or only watching quote-unquote art house cinema, you know, and what is considered great film. And I can sometimes neglect other films that may be important and may have a, a beautiful message to them because they are science fiction or they are fantasy. And I'm trying to go outside of that as much as I can. You're never going to see me at a superhero film. It's just not going to happen. But I myself would like to be more open. And, and I'm trying. And so when I saw Pan's Labyrinth, this was in 2006, at that theater that I was talking about, that I got in for $1. And the movie theater got it months after it came out. And I went with my mom. I dragged her along with me. She's never been into foreign films. And she was not into Pan's Labyrinth, but she went with me. And um, I was... Uh, what what age would I have been then? I probably would have been 17. I, I would have, my birthday's in July. My birthday's on July 20th. So I'm sure I probably saw this film after that. So I was 17 years old. My father had just died a year ago or more. And no, no, this was 2006. So he, he would have been dead only a few months by then. Um... I probably saw it late in 2006, possibly early 2007, depending on it, because the theater sometimes got films really, really far after they were released. So I am someone at that time who is raw and heartbroken and grief-stricken and scared and depressed and anxious, and I'm trying to crawl my way through life and I'm trying to survive in some way and so there I am sitting in that movie theater and this film comes on the screen and I was completely enraptured by it and absorbed by it and I remember at certain times um, sitting up in my seat like leaning up um, and like putting my head on the seat in front of me because there wasn't many people in the theater. There never was when I went to see foreign films in that particular theater. Um, and I remember sitting up, leaning up and really paying attention and really getting swept away by the story, which is really a fairy tale. And so even though I'm not into fantasy films, I think what captured me about the film and why it remains so beloved beloved by me and, and why I cherish it is that it is about a little girl. Um, and it centers around this little girl and her experience of loss and her experience of trauma and how she copes with that. And she's really coping with it through myth and through fairy tales. And when I rewatched it for this podcast, this is probably maybe the third time that I've seen it, the third or fourth time, 
because after I saw it, I had to have the DVD. You know, in 2006, streaming was not really how you saw films. You would go out, you would get the DVD. I remember getting this DVD of Pan's Labyrinth at Blockbuster. They used to have sales. You could get four DVDs for $20 and you could buy them. You weren't renting them. You could own them. And that's how I bought it. So I got this DVD. I still have it. <laughs> I recently discovered in my closet, um, like a, ba a big bag and a few boxes of all the DVDs that I had collected in my childhood because I lost my house in 2015. I had to move. I moved to a different state and I didn't know if I had grabbed them. My closet is a mess. My closet has so much stuff in it. I didn't know if I had, I still had those DVDs. So I was going through my closet the other day because I was curious. I was wondering if I had and I found them. I found my DVDs and it's like I can't explain to you what it meant to me. I almost wanted to cry because these are DVDs that I bought when I was a teenager, when I was a kid, and they just have a lot of sentimental um, power for me. And some of the films that I found, I want to talk about on the podcast. There are several that I had, like Julie Taymor's Frida and The Lives of Others and The Hours and um, just all kinds of different films. I found some Charlie Chaplin DVDs that I had. So it was like this treasure trove that I discovered and I found Pan's Labyrinth. And there is this DVD that's 12 years old. It's a double disc. One disc is the movie and then the second disc has all kinds of featurettes and extras. And I'll kind of weave in some of the things that I learned from the extras into this episode. So this film is very emotional for me and it's very personal to me, even though you probably, if you've listened to a lot of episodes on the podcast, you would not think that I would watch a film like this, that is fantasy, that is fairy tale. Um, but I just love this film and I cherish it. And, you know, I saw it when I was 17 and when you're 17, you're still a kid. I mean, even though you're one year from adulthood, really one year from 18, you're still a child, I think, in a lot of ways, and, and you're still naive. And and um, and um I think when my father died in 2006, when I was 16, I think in a lot of ways I got frozen in time in that age. Um, I feel very young and very old at the same time. Like, I feel like I feel like a 16 year old girl inside. I paint my nails and I like lip balm and I love pop music. I still listen to a lot of music from when I was a kid, a lot of 90s stuff and a lot of, uh, you know, pop princesses that I love. And um, so there's something very childlike about me in some ways. And yet I feel very old because of the loss and the grief and the trauma that I've been through you know, losing my father and just going through the different things that I've been through in my life. That's, there's that contradiction in me, I think, where I feel very serious, but then I feel very silly at times or superficial. And I think you can be both. And I think both are important that you can be a really serious person and watch art house cinema and like I do and read serious literature and all that. But I think you should also allow yourself to have that other part of you that enjoys silly things or, or stupid things or, 
you know, you, I don't watch art house cinema all the time. I watch romantic comedies. I watch what would be considered chick flicks. I watch all kinds of things. And I watch forensic shows and true crime shows. And I think we can be all of that at once. And that's okay to be all of those things. But sometimes I don't know how to share all of that. Like, I feel like I have to be this very serious person who talks about classic films or something. And there's this other part of me that is very different from that, that is very silly and, and, um, and sort of odd, you know? Um, so it's just, that is a part of me that is there. And, but, um, so I, I'm very sentimental about my childhood and about things that I watched or saw or listened to or read when I was a child or when I was in my childhood or my young adulthood. And Pan's Labyrinth is one of those things where, if you hear my dog, I apologize. And it, Pan's Labyrinth is just one of those things for me where it's just very dear to me. So I'm not going to give like a scene by scene breakdown of the film or anything like that. Sometimes I do that. Um, you know, I'll go through, uh, you know, everything that happens in a film and give my thoughts. I wanted to just talk about some general things about the film that I really loved. And that 12 years later, you know, when I watched it the first time, I was 17 years old. And I was in the rawness of my grief and I was searching for comfort and searching for some way to keep on living. And in many ways, 12 years later, now that I'm now 28 years old, um, about to turn 29 in July, it's, I'm still the same in a lot of ways. You know, there is still that rawness. There is still that grief and that mental illness and, and all of that. And, so in some ways I've changed because a lot of a lot of things have changed in my life since I saw the film. I've lost more people. Um, I've lost more things. I've gone through more turmoil and difficulties. And so I've changed in some ways and I'm the same in some ways. Um, but this film remains really special to me. And so it's about um, a little girl. Her name is Ophelia, and um, I'm not exactly sure how old she is. I would say she's um, 10, 11, 12, that kind of age. And um, the film is set in Spain in 1944, and it's several years after the end of the Spanish Civil War. That's what we're told at the beginning. We're told that... Um, the fascists have won Franco and, and his party or his people have won that war. But there are still um, resistance fighters that are in the mountains, that are in the um, the forest and the countryside. And the fascists are trying to, quote, unquote, exterminate them. So there's still turmoil in the country. And in 1944, there's also World War II going on, but that's sort of different. Um, but Spain is going through this time of violence and turmoil and difficulty. And that's the backdrop of the film. And I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to know the nuances of the Spanish Civil War to appreciate the film. It's, it's just a time of violence and uncertainty, especially for our character of Ophelia. And... Um, 
she is going to live with her new stepfather. Her father died in the Spanish Civil War, and her mother is pregnant with um, a little boy. Um, and she's having a lot of difficulties with her pregnancy. And they're going to live in the countryside with a man named the captain. And he is the head of um, the fascists, I guess, um, the the military unit that is in the forest, is in the mountains, trying to eradicate the resistance fighters, the guerrillas, as they're called in the film. And so that's sort of the backdrop of what is happening. And so Ophelia is obviously struggling. You know, her father died in the war. Her mother's pregnant. She's having to deal with um, this new man in her life that she doesn't know. And the captain is a very violent and sadistic man. So Ophelia is really, she's living in a world and she's entering into a world that is profoundly violent and scary and frightening. Um, and she is trying to deal with that. And that is why myth is so important in the film is because she's a young girl who loves to read fairy tales and uh, myths. We see her reading a book of them at the beginning of the film. So, um, so she arrives in the countryside where the captain lives and the captain meets them. And you can tell immediately this is a violent, dark, uh, sadistic and terrible man. You can just tell he is the villain of the film for sure. And, um, he's controlling, um, and he, he squeezes her hand when he first meets her because she doesn't go to shake his hand with the right or the proper hand. So we know this guy is really bad and he's cruel. And, um, so in the countryside where the captain lives, there's a labyrinth and immediately Ophelia goes into the forest and into the woods. And it reminded me how when I was a kid, I grew up in the south, in the rural um, south in a small town, and there's forests and meadows, and I would always play in the woods. I was always in the woods, and I loved trees, and I loved grass, and I loved um, being outside uh, with nature, and that's something that I still love. Um, I still live in a rural area of the south, and so... Like when it rains, I love the smell of that. I love seeing the stars at night. I love watching the wind sway, um, the trees sway in the wind. I love feeling the wind on my face. So I love being in nature. I love being outside when it's not ridiculously hot. Right now it's really, really hot. It's like in the 90s. But um, so Ophelia is someone who loves nature, it seems. And the labyrinth is really where her fairy tales center and we're told of a fairy tale about a princess who lived in the underground world and how she always dreamed of being in the human world she escapes the underground or the underworld and goes to be with humans but 
her memory is erased. So she doesn't remember that she comes from the underground. Um, she has no recollection of it. She does eventually die. But her father believes that her soul will return in another body. And he waits for that day when she will return. And so the labyrinth becomes the place of the underground, really. And that is where, first of all, she meets a fairy. It looks, it's like a large insect. And the fairy guides her to the labyrinth. And then in the labyrinth, she meets a fawn. And the fawn says, oh, the princess has returned. But she has to prove that she is a, the princess. She has to prove that she has not become mortal, that she has not become human, that she is this uh, immortal princess being. And she has to undergo, th she has to perform three tasks to prove that, to prove it to the phone and all of that. And then she'll be able to return to the underground or to the underworld and take her place as the princess along with her father and mother. So um, this is a really um, beautiful fairy tale. It's a beautiful myth. And even though I don't watch a lot of fantasy or read it, and I don't read a lot of mythology at all, I'm sort of a little bit aware of the different myths, you know, like Persephone and Demeter and what's the others? Um, Apollo and Daphne. I really like that one. That one's really fascinating. So there's different myths that I do know about. But something that I've always liked about mythology, even though I don't read it a lot, I don't feel drawn to it in particular. But when I was in school and we were reading the different myths, and I did take a class in college, something that I did like about it was that it was stories that people were telling to try to explain the things that were happening around them. You know, that ancient man or or ancient humanity, humans from, you know, thousands of years ago, they were trying to figure out why it rains, why the sun goes away, why there's floods, why, you know, here in the United States there's tornadoes, uh, why different events happen, why people die, why they get old. Um... And they didn't know. And so that's really how we get religion. But it's also how we get mythology of people trying to explain themselves, trying to explain who they are, trying to explain the meaning of life or the purpose of life, but also the mechanics of life and why things happen the way they do. Where did the mountains come from? Where did the trees come from? Because they did not know. And so these myths and these stories served obviously a very important function for us to try to understand ourselves, understand the world around us, and understand our place in the world around us. Um, so these stories are very important. And obviously this fairy tale for Ophelia is her trying to understand and make sense of her life and also trying to escape it in some way that she wants to get to the underground. It's it's interesting that in the beginning, the myth is about the girl, the princess, leaving the underground and going to the human world. But now that she's in the human world, she wants to escape from it because it's so violent and horrific and painful. And she wants to go back to the underground. And that is what she's trying to do throughout the film as she performs the different actions and, and the different tasks and all of that. And so this is really about a little girl trying to cope with 
life and cope with what she has experienced. And I didn't realize it. I mean, I don't know if I consciously thought about it at the time, but when I watch it now, I'm like, oh my God, I was watching this right after my own father died. I don't know if that registered. I can't remember really. And Ophelia's father has died. And, um, and she is longing for her father. Obviously she wants to get back to the underground so that she can be reunited with the father that is waiting for her. And, um, and it's really about a mother and a daughter who have lost someone just like my mother and I had just lost my father just a few months before. And so just as I think Ophelia is using these fairy tales to escape the very intense pain of her life, I think that in, in a similar way, um, I was escaping through films that films were a sort of a portal into magic for me, that uh, films were my fairy tales and my mythology that I was losing myself in and trying to um, navigate life um, through these films and, and, and cope and understand what I was going through and what I was feeling. And, um, I realized that as I was watching the film, I was like, wow, this is a really serious film about grief, too, and loss. And I don't know if it registered that way for me when I was watching it at 17 years old, but I think it must have. I think that's why it made such an impact on me and such an impression is that I must have either consciously or unconsciously realized that in a way I was Ophelia and I was going through some of what she was going through. And, um, and I don't think, it, I would say that it's not a coincidence that she's named Ophelia. If you've read Hamlet, Ophelia loses her father and she ends up, uh, basically committing suicide and drowning, um, because she just goes mad. I, I think she, for me, Ophelia has always been someone that I thought went mad over grief that she could not handle that her father had been killed and um, she just couldn't cope and she couldn't live with it and she lost her mind. And I, I always felt a kinship with Ophelia and I still do. And I remember reading Hamlet after my father died. I had an English class. It was an AP English class. And I don't know if it was the year of 2006, maybe the fall of 2006 or maybe the spring of 2007 when I had that class but I do remember reading Hamlet and just being completely um, moved by Ophelia and feeling such a connection to her. And then we also read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which really resonated with me because it is about trying to animate the dead. It's trying to bring the dead back to life. And obviously that resonated with me at the time because I wanted my own father to come back to life. I wanted him to be alive again. That was an intense book for me, actually. But nobody talks about that aspect of Frankenstein, that it's really about maybe our inability to accept death and to try to create something that would reverse death, that would bring the dead back to life. Um, and so, Oph but Ophelia really moved me. 
and I always sort of saw myself in Ophelia that I felt like I was drowning the way that she drowned and that I couldn't keep myself um, above water and I couldn't I, I couldn't cope at all with what I had been through and so I, to me I see the parallels and the connections between Ophelia the Shakespeare Ophelia of Hamlet and the Ophelia of Pan's Labyrinth and so perhaps del Toro is not just engaging with myth or ancient myth but with Shakespeare as well in that way I could be wrong but that's just sort of uh, what it brought up for me so Ophelia is really using these fairy tales and these myths to make sense of what's happened to her and also to try to find a way out of it um, you know, when you're that age, when you're 10 or 11 or 12, you really do believe in magic. And I mean, maybe she's older. She could be 12 or 13. I'm not good. I don't have children. So I'm terrible at the age of children. So do not ask me. Um, she's a preteen, I would say. Um, so watching the film 12 years later, I really realized how much I had in common with Ophelia. And I think that's why the, the film impacted me the way that it did at the time. I think that's why it had such a, why it left such a scar on my memory. Cause I remember being in that theater watching it. Like it was that intense of an experience knowing that this was an important film in my life, that it spoke to me in a particular way. So And I thought the film, um, I thought it did a really good job at looking at women's lives. We see Ophelia as this little girl really trapped in circumstances that she cannot change. When you're a child, you can't do anything. She is at the whim um, of these different adults in her life. And her mother is very passive her mother's pregnant and sick and doesn't feel well she's bleeding a lot she's eventually bedridden and put on bed rest so her mother is very distant in a way Ophelia cannot be with her mother a lot and so I think that amplifies her loneliness I saw Ophelia as a profoundly lonely person a lonely child that her father's gone her mother is sick all she has are these fairy tales. All she has is the forest and the fairies and the fawn. And that's what she loses herself in. And that's what she connects to. And, and, um, but she does have one person and that's Mercedes. Mercedes is, um, I don't know if she would be considered an assistant to the captain or a maid or just, um, just sort of a cook or someone who works at the the house she's like a domestic worker at the captain's house and um she's very involved in doing things and helping him and but she's actually secretly part of the resistance and she's funneling supplies to the resistance fighters the gorillas in the forest and the captain doesn't know that he finds out much later though but Mercedes sort of becomes a substitute mother figure to Ophelia and helps her and talks to her. And and she represents um, someone who's very nurturing and and um, and maternal towards Ophelia. And um, 
it's very interesting because Mercedes is a very fierce character. She's very strong. Um, so we get very different representations of women in this film. And in the extra features for the DVD that I have, Guillermo del Toro talks about how the film is a coming of age. It's about a girl transitioning from um, a little girl into a woman, you know, and, and going through that transition, that coming of age. Um, and so I think it's really powerful that he centers the, the film around a young girl, a young girl who's going through trauma and um, who's trying to deal with being a child in an adult world, in a very scary, violent world that she doesn't know um, how to navigate. She doesn't know what to do. Um, and so the myths or the fairy tales, these tasks that she has to undergo are sort of, they're sort of a trial by fire in some way, or what is it, the, a baptism by fire? These, this is like a, almost like, um, you know, so many cultures have rituals for that transition where you become a child, where you go from a child to an adult tasks that you have to do things that you have to do to prove that you have made the transition. And so she undergoes different tasks. Like she has to put, um, like pebbles in the, um, the mouth of like this big toad that's in a tree, and then she has to go um, at another time. And this is the scariest creature in the film. Like something that really amazed me. I mean, 12 years later, I would say the special effects of this film absolutely hold up. They are absolutely believable and and vivid and imaginative. And I usually don't watch films like this that are sort of scary um, or have monsters in them. But um, the artwork and, and the special effects, are they, they absolutely hold up. It's completely believable, that toad in the, in the tree. And she goes to see this man who's at this table. And she has to do some kind of task. And he's the one where he's the pale man. He has no eyes on his face. And his skin is, is like um, saggy and sort of dripping off of him and he puts his eyes in his hands and he does his hands up and that will like haunt your nightmares it's terrifying um but she has to do these tasks she has to face her fears and she has to work through her fear and um so it's it's almost like these tasks tasks are a rite of passage there are these things that she's doing um, in order to grow up, really, and to face her fears, and and she's able to. She's she's a strong little girl. She's a resilient little girl, much stronger and much more resilient than I was, um, and I was much older than her. Um, but she fails at some of the tasks, and the phone confronts her, and he says you will not be allowed into the underground and you're going to be mortal for mortal. You're going to die. You're going to have to stay as a human. And she's terribly upset about this, that she has to remain a human being. Um, and I'm looking at my notes. She's, um, she's so devastated by that and 
it got me thinking that like being human is a kind of horror if you think about it like if you really think about what we go through as human beings that we're here but then we're not and we have to die or we have to age or we have to lose people all the things that we go through as human beings it is horrific it is scary and it's completely understandable that she doesn't want to be a human being she wants to be immortal she wants to be reunited with her father all these things that, you know when you're 12 12 year old or 13 year old that would totally make sense to me that at that age that's what you would want you know and when she thinks that's taken away from her um it scares her it scares her terribly um Unfortunately, Ophelia's mother has a lot of complications with the birth of her child. And this is another way in which the captain's sadism really shows itself. That he tells the doctor to save the baby at all costs. Because the baby is a boy. And the baby will continue his name and continue his, you know, his legacy, I guess you could say. He does not care about Ophelia's mother. And I actually felt really bad for Ophelia's mom because here is this woman. Her husband has died. She has this little girl that she has to take care of. It's the middle of a war, right? The Spanish Civil War. What do you do? And she just happened to fall in love or, or get entangled with the wrong man, the captain, who is so cruel and mean. And he doesn't love her. He doesn't love Ophelia. And this woman's life does not matter. And that's what we see over and over again in the film is the devaluation of women's lives. That she's just a vessel to carry his baby. He doesn't care if she lives or dies. Ophelia is nothing to him. She's just a little girl. She can't carry his name on or his legacy on. So she's useless. Um, time and again you see that. You see the marginalization of women. But you also see women fighting against that like mercedes in this really amazing scene she's found out they find out that she was helping the resistance fighters and he's going to torture her and do terrible things to her um and she has a knife hidden in her apron and she brings it out and she cuts she cuts his cheek that is one of the most intense scenes of violence i've ever seen it's visceral to watch it i mean you know it's not real but it feels real and um that scene has always stayed with me when she cuts his cheek like that like she she likens it to gutting a pig that's what she says in the scene like she says something like you're not the first pig that i've gutted or something like that and so mercedes is an incredibly strong and fierce character really resisting um this this man and and stabbing him and and um attacking him and she comes out the victor but um what was i was gonna say something yeah in the extras on the dvd that i have um del toro talks about the violence in the film which it can be really graphic <laughs> like we see people we see people's noses and faces smashed with a bottle we see um we see people shot in in the head and in and different things we see blood we see her stabbing him and and gutting the captain we see 
um, a young man, a resistance fighter who gets caught and he is tortured and, and things like that. And his hand is, uh, mutilated. Um, so we see a great deal of violence in this film, which thinking about it now, going to watch this film at 17 years old, it is rated R. So, um, I'm sort of shocked that I watched it at that age. Um, I don't normally like to watch really violent films or really, um, what is it? Gory. I don't like gory, bloody films or horror films or anything like that. I'm not saying I never watch them, but it's it's not my main genre. And so it it was difficult for me to watch this film at times and to watch the violence. And Del Toro talks about how he talks about the difference between dramatic violence and, and spectacle violence. And he says that he was trying to do dramatic violence. He was trying to do violence in a way that um that makes people feel it, that makes people disgusted by the violence instead of like a spectacle kind of violence that you'll see in Hollywood that makes violence look sexy and exciting and, and all of that. He was trying to do something very different. He was trying to make you feel it. He wanted you to feel that violence. I think he wanted you to wince. He wanted you to be affected by it. And he certainly accomplished that. But um, when he was talking about that, I thought that was really interesting because it's not like it's not like we should get rid of violence in films because it is part of our everyday life and it is part of our world. But there is a difference in the way that different filmmakers portray it. That there is a way to represent violence that is not um, that doesn't glorify it or make it seem sexy or make it seem great or fun or something like that. And he certainly. Um, he certainly does not do spectacle. He is doing the dramatic um, violence and, and making you feel it and making you wince at it and feel disgusted by it. And you should feel disgusted. You should never see somebody being shot in the head and not feel something about it. You should not be numb to it because it is horrific. And um, I think Del Toro was really trying to make the audience feel that, you know. So, um, Ophelia's mother ends up dying. She gives birth to her baby boy, but she, I, I'm thinking she probably bleeds to death or something like that, um, which was a terrible fate that many, many women suffered before things got better in the medical field. Although here in the United States, there's actually a really high rate of maternal mortality compared to other countries so it's still a problem people think when you have children nowadays it's completely safe and it depends on your race it depends on your socioeconomic status it depends on a lot of things and um, not all women get the best care or, or get listened to um, and so we do have a high rate of maternal mortality here in the United States but um Ophelia's mother's death sort of underscores um, the violence that women endured um, through childbirth and um, and how scary that must have been. And of course, Ophelia now, she, she lost her father in the war and now she's lost her mother um, from childbirth. So Ophelia is just going through so much trauma 
And what's going to happen to her? Who's going to take care of her? The captain hates her. He doesn't like her at all. Um, I mean, when her mother died and just the look on her face, it was just like I cried. It broke my heart because she's really an orphan now. And um, she has even more reason to want to escape the world because now she's lost everything. And she tried to save her mother. She put like a, a mandrake root under the bed. And she tried to do these different things that I think the fawn or somebody told her to do to save her mother. And she couldn't save her mother. And it was it was a hard lesson. And I think the mandrake root gets discovered by the captain. He sees it. He throws it into the fire. And I don't know if it's at that time or another scene, but... Her mother tells Ophelia that she has to let go of these fairy tales. That the world is not a fairy tale. That it's hard and it's painful. And that she'll have to learn that for herself. And she does. And and that's the thing also about Ophelia that I relate to is she, through this trauma, through all this loss, losing her father, losing her mother, she um, she has to grow up. She has to confront death at a very early age, just the way that I did. She has to accept the way the world is, that it is, that it can be scary, that it can be painful, that it can be violent and unfair and um, incredibly uh, painful. And she has to face that. And I, but I think it maybe makes her hold on to those fairy tales even more. Um, that she doesn't know how to cope with it. She doesn't know how to confront the world as it is. And I think I'm similar. It's like I don't know how to... I don't know how to accept the way the world is and the way life is. And I think I have to... I have to lose myself in things. I have to lose myself in art or books or films and... I think maybe that's at times what Ophelia is doing with these fairy tales is that she cannot accept what has happened. She can't process it and she cannot accept it. And so she has to find another way to live. She has to find um, an escape um, or something that takes her out of it or that represents a possible escape from it. She's making these... She's living in these stories and and creating these stories as a way to um as a way to live through this trauma and so like i said earlier in a similar way i'm using films in in the same way or or books or things like that i have to sort of um you know lose myself in those things because it's just too painful to be alive at times and to deal with everything that's happened and um so I see myself so powerfully in Ophelia much more now than I think I felt at the time I don't know if I felt this kind of identification with her or if I realized it but now I see so much of it I see um I see why I connected to the film so deeply at that time in my life so um her mother dying is is just incredibly devastating and um Ophelia takes her brother and she runs to the labyrinth 
and the captain follows her there. And this is just the most heartbreaking scene. And he takes the baby from her and he shoots her. He kills her. I I can't remember a film in which the protagonist dies like that. I think it was very shocking to me at the time. But if you think about it, she almost had to die. You know, how could this innocent little girl, how could she survive in such a world? She is, um, she is at its mercy and it completely eats her alive. It destroys her because, um, because that's what the world does. It destroys people like that. It destroys the sensitive and the innocent and the kind you know the brutality in the world and the violence and especially at that time in Spain and I was even thinking a little bit of Anne Frank I know it's not the same um but I think of like the children that died in the Holocaust um I think maybe you could say that Ophelia sort of represents that in a way of the death of innocence the death of a child especially in something historically trauma traumatic like a war like um the holocaust you know that they were eaten alive they were absolutely destroyed you know the way anne frank was the way million you know a million and a half children died in the holocaust i don't don't quote me on it but at least a million children died in the holocaust and it's incomprehensible you know it is incomprehensible that that many children were murdered and so Ophelia is a murdered child she has been killed by the captain she's been killed by like evil and violence and sadism and brutality and could she have ever survived I don't know the world would not let her survive where she was in that moment of history and the violence that that came with it and so that was it was almost like she was doomed to it in a way and the film actually begins with her death it begins with her laying there with with blood coming out of her nose and then the nose i think it reverses and the nose the the blood i'm sorry the blood reverses and goes back into her nose almost like trying to reverse this violence reverse this murder this crime against this child and so um but death is Ophelia's escape in in a lot of ways, at least in this film. And um, she's dead, but she goes back to the underground because she's the princess, right? And she's reuni reunited with her parents. Her mother is there. Her father is there. They're on thrones. It's a world full of light. And I noticed the, the obvious contrast between the the human world that Ophelia had been in which was like really dark greens and blues and grays um a very muted color palette and then the golds and the bright colors of the underground that Ophelia goes to after death so even the color is is a huge contrast between these two worlds it's almost like a form of heaven I guess you could say and she's reunited with her father and um it's said that she rules in that world, but that she left traces of herself in the human world on Earth. But only the people who know how to look for those traces can find them. And so I saw that maybe as a message about um, 
paying attention and being open to the world and to maybe trying to hold on to the child inside the child that believes in fairy tales the child that believes in myths the child that um believes in magic and 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 all of that and um it's it's a happy it's weird because it's both a sad and a happy ending because she dies but we have this story that she lives on in the underground in the underworld and that um she's reunited with her father and her mother and and so there there's obviously a, a beautiful happy ending there to a certain extent and i think that um obviously that touched me at the time um this idea that you would be reunited with your father reunited with somebody that you've loved and lost and um i've never had that consolation um i've never believed in anything beyond this world and i'm not religious and i am an atheist and so i don't have that sort of comfort or anything like that and that can be really difficult at times and so ophelia had her fairy tales and i think that's what helped her get through that she could think that one day she would see her father again and she they would be reunited and she would be a princess and that's what she looked forward to and that's what she worked towards because she believed that that could happen um and so it's just this beautiful story about really a, a little girl's psychology a little girl trying to navigate grief and loss and violence and the brutal world that she is living in that she's trying to survive and the way that she creates these fairy tales and myths in order for her to navigate it and in order for her to survive it um it's a story about a little girl's spirit and resilience in the face of um horrific horrific loss and violence and um i think that's obviously why it had to resonate with me when i was 17 and now why it still resonates with me when i'm 28 um i just think it's it's a beautiful film everything about it just feels so beautiful like watching it now i i don't have any criticisms of it like at all the the special effects are are um phenomenal and the story is beautiful and it's beautifully written and um i just i don't have any um issues with it at all i i think it's a really beautiful coming of age story but i think at its heart it's it's a story also about grief and also about loss and um how a little girl copes with those things or how she can't cope with those things and so um that's that's why it stayed with me all these years um and i think i'm a lot like ophelia you know looking for looking for that escape looking for a way out <laughs> um but of course it's not really there we're we're stuck <laughs> we're stuck in this life we're stuck in our human bodies our mortal bodies and we don't get to we don't get a choice uh, we don't get an escape from that and so that's very painful as you can tell that ophelia has serious issues 
dealing with it and accepting it that she is immortal that she is human that she is vulnerable to death and um yeah i think i've said everything i wanted to say about it it's just a special film to me and i've seen it several times I'll, i'm sure i'll watch it many more times um it's a good film i think to periodically revisit and even though we don't live in the type of world that Ophelia lived in, like a civil war or the aftermath of a civil war, there was great polarization in Spain at that time. That's why there was a civil war. And so watching it now also and seeing what's happened in the United States where I live and seeing the division, seeing the polarization, seeing the influence of fascism and right-wing extremism, just as you had sort of similar in Spain, you know, with Franco and all of that. It's interesting to see the film in that light, too, in the in the terms of political light. Um, and to see what those divisions and that polarization can do to people, how it can turn people against each other, the violence that it can lead to. And, and perhaps this film could be a bit of a warning, you know, that when you have that, look what happens. Look at the lives that are sacrificed. Look at the lives that are destroyed because of that. Um, it's it's difficult. There's a lot of polarization here. And there's even been people writing about how there could be another civil war in the United States. And I don't know about that. Um, but I really don't want to contemplate it personally. But things are getting much more extreme here in the United States. Um, with the rise of the right wing and how powerful uh, the right wing and, and fascist ideas have become in in the country. And so that was something that um, occurred to me as well as I watched of those divisions and the violence. And it's not exactly the same. I'm not making any kind of parallels or comparisons, but it was something that I thought about. So this film is very rich. And that's, I, I would say that is an, a really great thing about mythology or fairy tales or even fantasy is that it's rich in symbols. It's rich in meaning. It's rich in multiple interpretations. The way you can see Ophelia however you want to see her. She is a figure that you can connect to in different ways. I saw the grief. I saw the loneliness other people may see different things in her and, and connect to those things in a different way. So um, that is something that I like about this film is the multiple interpretations and the way you can really make it your own and, and connect to those symbols and connect to those images or those myths and fairy tales in your own personal way. And um, that is a really beautiful thing about the film. Well, I think I have gone on long enough about this film. Um, I hope that you will watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, I, I think it will probably go down as one of the one of the classic films about a child and about childhood and possibly even about war. Um, I think that's a really important aspect of it. Even though the war is over by 1944, the remnants remain and and the aftermath of it remains and there is a great deal of violence there so i'll end my discussion of the film here 
So to end this episode, I want to share an interview that I conducted with my mom recently where I asked her about what the experience was like going to the movies after my father died, why we went, what it gave us, how it comforted us, um, and all of that. And I want to share that interview with you. It's it's really personal at times, but it really is, um, there's a lot of laughter and a lot of silliness. And I wanted to share this part of myself with you. When I get with my mom, we laugh, we're silly, it's crazy. This interview went a little bit off the rails, um, but I still think it's it's worth listening to. And my mom has never been on the podcast before. I think she was a little bit nervous. Um, just keep in mind, I only have one microphone, so I was I was sort of like uh, when you see entertainment reporters having to hold the microphone for the celebrity they're talking to. I was having to do that. So if sometimes you don't hear everything she says, that's why. But overall, I thought this was a good interview. I just wanted to share it. I think it's sweet. I think it's fun. It might make you laugh a little bit, but it might also give you some insight into how me and my mom really turned to films and to cinema to help us through our grief in 2006 and the years after um, as we were trying to process and cope with the death of my father. So I I hope you like this uh, interview and um, I'll just let you listen to it now. Okay, I'm here with my mom. We're going to do an interview. Okay, so first of all, I want to say I'm really glad that you're home from the hospital. This time last week, you were in the hospital. So I just want to say that I'm glad you're home. Me too. Me too. Well, first, well, I guess you should introduce yourself. So just... Say hello to everybody because this is your first time being on my podcast. So, just want to thank you for doing this and for talking to me. So, say hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> okay, so we're sitting here and our dog's in between us. My boom boom. <laughs> yeah, here's the little boomy. My little, my dog's in between us. So, we're just sitting here. We're going to talk. My dog's in between us. Oh, stop. <laughs> you got to talk into the microphone, ma. My dog, Boomer. (laughs) I'm going to have to edit this out. (laughs) Okay. So we're just sitting here hanging out, and we're going to talk about how we went to the movies a lot after Daddy died, and he died in 2006. So what I want to talk to you about is just, like, some of your memories and, you know, uh, when we went to the movie theater that we had at that time in 2006, and it was really close by. It wasn't too far away, was it? No. This is so weird. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, do you... I don't remember before Daddy passed away. I don't remember us going to the movies a whole bunch. It felt like after after that that we went to the movies more. Do you think so? I think so, yes. That's correct. <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> we usually have a better rapport than this. It was a soothing thing. It was a way to make us, you know, get away for a little while. You know, like an escape. Yeah. Um. So we went to this movie theater and it was like a dollar. It was a dollar to get in at the time. I think later on it went up to like a dollar fifty. But um, what are 
some of the things you remember about that movie theater. Now, first, before I say that, we don't live in North Carolina anymore. So, um, you know, we, and we really, where we're living now, they don't have a theater like that. They don't have like a discount place. Like we got to go to this movie theater because they would get films months later. You didn't get to see something right when it came out. You had to wait a few months. So that's how we got that discount where it was only a dollar to get in. But concessions could be kind of expensive. But they always had a special. You know, you could get like a big bag of popcorn and a drink for like a certain price. Yeah, they did. They had um, they had certain like discounts on Tuesdays. I think it was That's like, Tuesdays. That's it, Tuesdays. Yeah, and so I think you got like a drink and a popcorn, and you know you they had certain specials for like ten dollars or something like that. So that was really good for us, and um, so they had different discounts and stuff like that. But, um, now I don't know if I told you, but I went online and I was, I was just, I guess I was sort of nostalgic. I was curious about this theater and, you know, we hadn't been to it in years. I didn't know much about it. And it turns out that this particular theater is no longer a discount theater. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't surprise me. But now it's like, it's trying to be like a regular theater you know, where they get the new releases and it's full price. But we remember that theater. It was not in the best shape. No, no it, it was very old. Yeah. So I was reading some reviews like on Google and stuff and people were saying it. They were saying, you can't charge full price when the theater, I mean, literally parts of the ceiling in this theater were missing. And a lot of the seats would be broken too. It was very difficult to sit in the seats at times. Now, when you're paying $1 to get in, you'll put up with that. But if you are paying $10 to get into this theater, I don't think it's good enough. You know, but it's just, it's. I think it's an indication of the way the times have changed. You know, we haven't been to that theater in ages. It's been years and years. So we started going around 2006 and we saw a lot of different films that year. But um, what are some of your memories when we started going to the theater? Like, what do you remember about being there? And um, maybe um, how did you feel when you watched the films and stuff? I remember they had a really nice manager. And she was super nice. And, like, if they got things, like, I remember one time she gave us an umbrella from one of the movies and that was just so sweet because she only had like a handful to give out to people but we were such regular customers we went like every week and I remember we always went and then while we were there we would see another movie for the next week we wanted to see they all for some reason this this I don't know what you'd call it like this it, this time that we were going it was like the best movies were coming out like every week. Yeah. You'd see a poster. You'd be like, oh, I want to see this. Then the next week they'd have another poster. Up, oh, we wanted to see this one. And it was just like we've never had that many movies that we wanted to see or could see at a good rate. Like like I said, it was a dollar, dollar and a half that we could go for such a long period of time and see great movies because that doesn't happen now it just doesn't yeah they this was 2006 so this was before i would say it got to be so much about superheroes yeah. 
exactly as before all the superhero movies. And that's fine, you know. They have their place for people that love them. But other people want to see other things, you know. like Exactly. And so, at that time, we saw a lot of the Oscar films. And something that was really special about this theater was that they would get foreign films. They would get films from other countries, like... The Lives of Others, like Pan's Labyrinth, and, and they didn't get a ton of foreign films, but they at least got them. Now, where we live now, the local movie theater, all they get is the blockbusters. All they get are the superhero or the science fiction films, and me and you, we've never really been into films like that. We're more into romantic comedies. Um... We're into, like, stories about real people. You know, like, reality is what interests us. And so, um, do you do you remember any specific films that we saw at the theater? And do you remember, like, your feelings when we would go to the theater? Like, what it made you feel? Well, this is not one of the... I don't know if it's a rom-com. I guess maybe it is. But I remember so much going to uh, see Sex in the City. Like, we were so excited to see that. The first one? Because yeah. I don't like the second one. The first one. The first one. Like, the music and just the feel. And, you know, it's just, it was so exciting to see it. Yeah. I, I liked the second Sex in the... I mean, the first Sex in the City. I have a big problem with the second one, as you know, because I ran about it all the freaking time to you, which you hate. But, um, I, I, I forgot that we saw the first one there, did we? I guess we did. But, yeah, like, we got to see some romantic comedies or just, like, some fun films. Like, we didn't, I, I had to really kind of drag you to the foreign films. Like, I was more of the person, I wanted to see Pan's Labyrinth and the lives of others. And you would go with me and the theater would basically be empty except. Yes, it would be empty except for a few scattered about people. Yeah, it would mainly be empty except for the, me and Five you. Five and other people. <laughs> does that make you laugh yeah. we would always laugh about it though um like that we were just the only people in the theater seeing those films but we didn't just go see you know the serious stuff we would also go see like fun comedies and stuff like that so we we liked to laugh too but what why do you think we went to the movies so much how how did it affect you to go to the movies well, because sometimes we had such a hectic week. And also, it was affordable to go. Why not go? Sometimes we would go to a double feature. We would see two. I remember that. <laughs> when I went through the second movie. I remember that. Yeah, we did. We saw double features, which we never did at another theater. We, You know, you'd go, you're lucky if you could afford the first movie. I remember one time we went, like, I don't know what we were thinking, but we did like a double feature at night. Yeah, I remember that. And we watched two films. We didn't get out of there till like 10 o'clock. I thought it was later. I thought it was like 11 or 12, which was really late for us. But we paid for it. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we, we were like exhausted, right? Yeah, we were like zombies the next day. <laughs> we were like, what were we thinking trying to do a double feature that late at night? But, um, I know, but. Did it did it bring a sense of comfort to you to see films? Yeah, it was comforting. It was just 
you looked forward to it all week, you know, and you wondered how it was going to be. Was it going to disappoint you, or was it going to be as good as you hoped it was going to be? Yeah. Do you remember any films besides Sex and the Sea? Do you remember any of See, I know it's been years. It's been like 12 years or, you know, a little bit less than that. But um, do you remember any other specific films? I, I can't really write. I just second. I can't. <laughs> well, I can tell those films meant a lot to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, yeah, I can tell you really the experiences meant a lot because you can't remember anything. <laughs> but I saw some good ones. I just can't remember all of their names. But we did see some good movies. <laughs> I can tell they made an impression. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. No, but something that was cool about, also cool about this theater was they had like a little, um, like lobby. Yeah. They had a little cute little lobby and they had a photo booth. So we tried to go over there as much as we could and go into the photo booth, get the crazy pictures made, which we still have. Yeah, we do have them. We do. This was before they switched to becoming, like, the new releases. And the last film that we saw there was, um, oh my gosh. Ricky and the Flash? Yeah, the Meryl Streep film, Ricky and the Flash. With Rick Springfield. And surprisingly, it was really good. I mean, you really didn't know what to expect. We were just going because it was cheap. We were stressed that week. We needed to get out and have a good time, do something crazy. And it was really actually good. It was nice to be surprised in that way. Well, the thing about it being a cheaper theater like that is that you could take a chance on films. You know, when you're going to pay seven, eight, ten dollars for a film, that's a lot of money to us. It may not be a lot to some people. But you're gonna you're gonna be cautious when you're paying that kind of money. Now, if you if it's a dollar or two to get in, I think they went up to two dollars near the end, like before they changed. You're you're gonna take a chance, and sometimes we would take a chance on films, and we would actually really end up liking them, like Ricky and the Flash, and I can't remember all the films that we saw. So you're more willing to take a chance on a film. And I was able to do that with some of the foreign films. You know, I didn't know if I was going to like The Lives of Others or Pan's Labyrinth. But it was a dollar. And I thought, well, what the hell? I'll just give it a try. And so, you know, theaters like that, they were, they help people like us. Like working class people. People without a lot of money. And I think it makes cinema for everybody. You know, when you start to get into tickets or $10 a person... A lot of people can't go to those. It excludes people from the experience well, of cinema. And it helped people with kids, too, because they did have a lot of kid-friendly movies. Yes, they did have kid-friendly films. And they would have a little special on the refreshments, like the kids got like a little popcorn, a little candy, a little drink. That helps people. It's got a lot of kids. Exactly. And so... I mean, yes, is streaming great? And streaming has really brought films to everybody, too. You know, because for the price of what you'd pay for one film ticket, you could have Netflix every month. And so Netflix has done a great job of bringing more films to more people. But the experience of being in a theater, because there's not a lot of discount theaters anymore, you know, the one that we had at that time eventually changed. So if we were still living there, we would not have access to it. But these these theaters where it's full price, 
it excludes a lot of people from the experience of cinema, from sitting in a theater. Now, we used to get to the theater really early, didn't we? Yeah, we got there early. We like to get in, get our popcorn, get our refreshment before the crowd got there. We love to get our seats. We love to get our special seats. <laughs> we were very particular. Like, we would get there 20 minutes early or something. Back in the middle. In the back and in the middle. that We would always take the last row in the back and we would sit in the middle. And um, that was really important to us to have that. And we just, we had our certain rituals. And do you remember how the theater at that time would play music? Yeah, I loved the music they would play before the movie would start. Yeah, so we would sit there in the theater. We got our spot before everybody got there. And then they would be playing music. I remember they played like Leanne Womack oh, at that time. Leanne. And Fighting Ivory, too. <laughs> oh, God. No, I don't think... No, Thriving Ivory. Thriving Ivory, okay. Thriving Ivory? <laughs> they were like a one-hit wonder. It was a good hit wonder. Oh, God. <laughs> I, liked, I liked hearing those same music and the trivia they would show every time we would go. Yeah, at one point they started having trivia up on the screen and stuff like that. That was fun. But they would play like music and they would play like it was it was an eclectic variety of music. I'm going to say that. Now, I do remember Katy Perry being played. They played I Kissed a Girl. Yeah, they played that. And they played a lot of Leanne Womack, which we love. Yeah, we love country music. So, um. Good country music. Say it again. Alan Jackson. You know, it's an Mama, you got to talk when the microphone's at your mouth. Because people ain't going to be able to hear you. I got one microphone. And my arm is not very fast. Please work with me here. We like country music. Alan Jackson would be played. George Strait. Leanne Womack. But then also Katy Perry and Thriving Ivory. So there was a little bit of everything for everybody with the music. But we enjoyed that. And um... But how did it feel, like, sitting in the theater and watching the film? What kind of... I keep asking you this. What kind of feelings did it give you? It was mixed feelings. You know, it was an escape from something that we had gone through that was very hard and very sad. But it was also a great time just to, like, me and you to spend time together. Just, you know, just chilling. (laughs) Oh, God. Please don't say chilling. (laughs) You know, calming down after a crazy week. And it was just, we were depressing. We were... Oh, God. Not depressing. (laughs) What's the word? (laughs) Decompressing. (laughs) Decompressing. It was just, you know, it was... Oh my god, this has just really gone off the rails. <coughs> this has gone off the rails terribly. We had our popcorn. It was quiet. Lots of butter. It was air conditioned. It was quiet. You know, usually wasn't a lot of people there unless it was a movie that was like really popular with people. And it was just a nice... <laughs> We can't talk. Is this even gonna? Can anyone? Is this listenable? 
Can it, is this fit for consumption? It was a nice, quiet evening after a long, hard, crazy week. I'm sure people can relate to that. <laughs> I'm trying to go deeper into your feelings. I don't have deeper feelings. I've got popcorn and a movie and air conditioning. I'm good. Oh, God. Oh, this is the most laughing that listeners of Her Head and Films have ever heard on an episode of this podcast. (coughs) This is how I get when I'm with my mom. We are, like, so silly. True. (laughs) No, but we really, we loved that theater. And when it was under a particular manager, that's when it was at the best. There was a manager. She's the one that gave us the umbrella. She was very nice. She interacted with people. It didn't feel like your average cinema where it's like you go in, you get your ticket, you get your food, and you go inside and you watch the film. She would come out. She would talk to people. She noticed that we were up there a lot. She let you know that she appreciated you coming every week. You know, oh, you know, nice to see you again. Hope you enjoyed a movie you see tonight. It was just so nice to get that from a manager. I mean, honestly, in my dream life, you know, my dream world, I have my own movie theater because I would love to run a movie theater like that where... It's part of the community where people feel like a home. Like, we felt safe there. We felt like it. I almost feel like it was like another home that we created this home inside of this theater. And it was it was a safe space. I mean, I know that word, that phrase gets bandied about a lot. But it was like a safe space for us. We could watch films. We could, We. I don't know if it was an escape all the time. You know, but it was just a sense of um, getting lost in a story and just having a space where we could enjoy ourselves. Sometimes we went to serious films like, you know, some of the foreign films that I dragged you to. And then sometimes we watched comedies and romantic comedies and lighter films. And so we kind of experienced all kinds of different films in that theater. And it actually makes me really sad that it's changed. Because I went online and I was looking at the showtimes, and it's basically the blockbusters. There's no foreign films. There's, I mean, actually, we only had those foreign films and those types of films that you were talking about earlier. We had that for a few years while that particular manager was there. Once that manager left a few years later, I would say, when do you think she left? 2009, 2010? I'm not sure, but after she left, the movies changed a lot. But sometimes I wonder, was it her or was it the film industry that changed? Because there was a time when there were really great films that were being shown. And then it started to shift to the blockbusters, to the, the superhero films, the Marvel films and stuff like that. And so I don't know if the times changed or it was her leaving. Um, I'm not really sure, but it really changed. And now it's not even the same kind of theater. It's a completely different, it has a different name, but it sounds like it's still really in terrible shape. So I wouldn't be surprised if it eventually closes down. But I mean, what do you want to share about that experience of us going to the movies? I mean, I know for me, it was a comfort. I know that it helped me, you know, kind of get through my grief. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't cure it or anything. It's not like I no longer felt any kind of pain or grief. But I think it, I mean, when I look back on that time, when I think about us in in those theaters watching those films, it's, 
not just that I was watching those films, but that I was with you. Like you said, it was a time for us to be together, to share something fun that the two of us could do. You know, when you live in a small town in the rural south, there's not a lot to do. You know, there's there's like one bowling alley. There was that movie theater. There's some restaurants. But it's not some kind of exciting place to live. With. And, and that's okay. I don't need to go out every night doing stuff. But we didn't have a lot to do. So, you know. But um, but it was something for us to do together. It was, like you said, we looked forward to it. <coughs> well, we it gave, wait, it gave us a chance to be together and spend time together. What else would you like to say? I would just like to say we kept our movie tickets. So we have, we can sit sometimes and we can reminisce about that because we can go back and see a lot of the movies that we did go see. Yeah, I went through them the other day. We saw, do you, we saw The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Can you believe that? That was really good. But that was a long film. Very long. And I didn't realize that we had seen it in that theater. We obviously saw Pan's Labyrinth. We saw The Lives of Others. We saw Ricky and the Flash, Sex in the City. Um, I don't have the tickets in front of me. I don't have the tickets in front of me right this second. But the movies themselves are not always the most important part. Some of the movies we saw were totally forgettable. You know, these were not important films or, you know, considered classic cinema or anything like that. But it was the experience of being together, of getting lost in a story, of having our popcorn and our air conditioning, and just being together. Yeah. Because like I said, we looked forward to it. It gave us, you know, we talked about it throughout the week. Oh, what are we going to go see? You know, are we going to like it? Is it going to surprise us or is it going to disappoint us? You know, it gave us something to kind of... uh, talk about when things would be kind of crazy during the week and then when we actually got there you know we knew we could just enjoy ourselves and you know it was a Friday night and just you know if we wanted to stay and watch something else we could or you know just leave it at one movie absolutely I think that's a good place to stop you know I just wanted to talk to you about it because it's part of our life it's you know, part of our memories together that we went to the movies a lot. Like you said, we were probably going on a weekly basis. If there was something good coming on, and I think at that time we like, because that was 2006, 2007, we didn't have a computer. We were looking in the newspaper. We were looking at the showtimes in the newspaper. I mean, it's crazy to think how things have changed in 12 years. It's just nuts. It's like back then I was looking in the newspaper and going to a physical movie theater you know, now we watch stuff on the TV or on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. So things have just changed so much. But those physical experiences, those tangible experiences, they stay with you. You know, of going and sitting in a movie theater. And I know it made a difference for me. And it made an impact on me. And and it's just something that I still think about. I just still think about us going to that movie theater and watching those films and what that meant to us and how it helped us, you know, get through life and, and things like that. And it helped us get through the grief that we were going through at that time. So it was, it's just really special memories to me that I, that I share with you that we were together, you know, it just, it means a lot to me. It's, you know, after daddy passed away, we became 
extremely close. You know, when you lose a parent, I think sometimes you do get very, very close to your remaining parent. And so this was something that we shared together and that we still share together. We still love foods. We still love spending time together. You know I love you. I love you too. Why are you whispering? I don't know. <laughs> you don't want to yell your love for me? I love you. Stop. Okay. I'm trying to get you to open up, but I think we did a good job. I think we talked about a lot of stuff, so... I know you're not used to being on my podcast. This is your first time on here. Your premiere. You're premiering on my podcast. And um, so thanks for talking to me and being your crazy self. You're welcome. You going to do this again ever again? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if you like it. Okay, I'll stop here. Thanks for talking to me. You're welcome. <laughs>